Hi, and welcome to the Chainsaw Carving Podcast. I'm glad you guys are with us. And uh, today I'm going to be talking with Chris Lance from Georgia. And Chris Lance is also from Extreme Sculpting. And with Chris, we're going to talk a lot about carving, carving tips, but also kind of like how to find balance when carving is your full-time job. Uh, I'll go ahead and bring Chris on. Hi, Chris. Uh, Hey, Molly. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, So how's the weather? Where are you at right now? Um, I'm in North Georgia right now. Uh, My wife and I bought a house in Clarksville last summer, five days before our daughter was born, and that's in the Northeast Georgia. Okay, cool. I'm I'm up in Minnesota with snow on April 12th, so Georgia sounds good right now. Hey, all except for there's a tornado warning. Oh, (laughs) that's not so good. Okay, so the first question I have for you, what is, what's your chainsaw carving story or how did you get started carving? Okay, well, I'm glad you asked. A lot of people seem to. And uh, well, for me, uh, chainsaw carving started uh, in 1989, uh, one year before I was born. Um, my dad and my two uncles, they used to be real bad and they used to party and they used to do drugs. And they started going to church in Melbourne, Florida. And they met a man there named Ted Travers. And Ted told them that he felt like he was being led by God to teach them how to chainsaw carve. So he taught them, and I watched for 19 years. And in December the 5th of 2009, I left my house with a trash bag full of clothes, a $20 bill, and a pack of cigarettes. And I moved to an abandoned flea market in Columbus, Georgia, where I slept there for a week and a half until finally I got a hold of a chainsaw. And then two weeks after that, I carved a bear that sold for $125. And since then, I quit smoking cigarettes and I gave my life to Jesus. Wow, that's an incredible story. So did you, you said it was 19 years from the time the guy started teaching your dad how to carve? Um, yep, yep. He started teaching them in uh, 1989 and uh, I left my house in December the 5th of 2009. Wow, cool. So then did it take off right away or was it slow going at first? Um, well, well for me, um, my older cousin had done it back um, in the late 90s and early 2000s with my dad and uncle. They used to work for uh, Masters of the Chainsaw and they carved some fares for Brian and Jen. And okay. um, he, um, I don't know, they had a you know, a disagreement and ended up not being able to work for them anymore. And, uh, my cousin, Mike, he, uh, joined the military and, uh, he's the one who kind of, uh, let me borrow a, a chainsaw in the beginning. And, uh, he tried to show me how to like, uh, you know, ha- how to carve a bear and also how to carve a pelican, but I was just really terrible. And he was trying to figure out like how I could learn. And, um, you know, he had told me that if I didn't carve a bear within two weeks, that uh, he was just going to send me home. And I'm not sure where he would send me because I didn't have anywhere to go. No but, pressure. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, one day he he uh, went to work and uh, before he left, uh, he had had this order from this guy and uh, he's, it was for 125 bucks. And I was supposed to carve a bear on top of like a two and a half foot column that had the guy's name down it. And he looked at me and he said, don't mess it up. And like pointed his finger at me. So uh, <laughs> I pretty much had no option. Right. 
So I wonder too, like when you said it was tough to get going or, you know, tough for you to learn at first, I always notice, and maybe you don't notice this, but I feel like people's brains are different. You know, like I know some carvers that um, carve very like almost systematically where they, they somewhat have their cuts memorized to get to a certain point and they, they learn through repetition. And then like, I can't, I can't think that way. I have to take it kind of one sculpture at a time and just kind of plug away at it. But I don't, I definitely don't have it memorized. I think people's brains are really different. So I wonder if that matters when someone's teaching you, if they're different than you are. Um, well, first he tried to like show me how to, how to make one. And, And he was, you know, I thought that he was the greatest carver ever at the time, but he told, you know, and people are going to laugh at this when they hear it. He says, don't forget the true masters is what he told me. And he, he said, master Brian and master Ben and talking about Brian Ruth and Ben Risney. And, uh, yeah. you know, whenever it was just, um, me and Mike, we really looked up to those guys and I tried to, uh, find any pictures that I could online of stuff that, uh, Brian or Ben had carved and tried to copy it. I mean, obviously it was a uh, really just a butchery, <laughs> of it, you know, <laughs> for a long time. And, uh, you know, I just, um, we, I didn't really know of, of any other carvers that existed then, you know, that I thought were going to be good to kind of look up to, but we would print off pictures almost every night of like, you know, hummingbirds or pictures of, uh, horses and stuff like that and try to try to go and, and carve them. And Mike was, he was, you know, years and years ahead of me because he had done it from whenever he was young. And, uh, I just, I had a hard enough time trying to figure out, you know, how to make a, the bear's ears, the same size, really, you know, right. come out with like a little baby ear and then a big ear, a little tiny arm on one side. And it's like, <laughs> I find that symmetry is one of the hardest things when you're learning because just the way that you hold the saw, you know, when, when the saw is on the left side of the carving, it's a way different angle than when it's on the right side, unless you switch hands, you know, and carve left-handed if you're right-handed type of thing. And I, symmetry's tough. You know, and, and I agree with that, really. I realize that on one side of my carving, sometimes I have like a, a strong side where I'll spend extra time on. And I'm pretty sure that's where like the handle of the saw is pointed you know, or the left side of the saw is pointed up. I can carve better like that, but I carve upside down with it almost to where I hold right. the very bottom of it. And then on the other side, it's like, well, my left hand can't hold that side over there. And, uh, ultimately what I do is I end up laying the carving down sometimes and just carving upside down and backwards. And that ends up, uh, Oh, sure. Working out, I guess. Sense. So did you make any art before chainsaw carving? Um, not really. Um, whenever I was a kid, I think that I, I drew birds one summer. Like I had this fascination with like, I guess, birds anatomy. And I mm-hmm. would draw them with a pencil and then trace them with like a, um, a, a little Sharpie to kind of get the line a little bit thicker. And then I colored them with crayons and, uh, one of my mom's friends actually bought one of them for me for $3 and 50 cents. So that was cool. Oh, nice. You're almost like, like a science journal almost. <laughs> the birds. Yeah. Well, he was like, man, those are really great. You know, can I, 
can I, oh, would you be willing to sell one of those? And I was like, um, I don't know. And I don't know why I told him, but you know, $3 and 50 cents seemed like a good price. I don't know what I was trying to get a bag of candy probably. Yeah. Yeah. Just short-sighted. What do I want right now? <laughs> I know when I was younger, I never wanted to sell my art and now I, I want it to go away. I sell all of it. I don't have any of it. <laughs> You know, one of the things I learned early on in carving was that no matter what, every piece is going to sell. And I, and sometimes that's hard to really believe, especially when you're the one who made it and you're like, man, you know, I don't know. There's, there, I think there's two different sides of, of uh, carving, you know, that people look at their carving and, and think, oh, after they've done it, that that's the greatest thing in the world and that they're God's gift to chainsaw carving. Or they look at it and think, man, that's terrible. And I think that um, for me, whenever I looked at my carvings, a lot of times I thought that I was just horrible and mm -hmm. uh, my cousin never stopped reminding me of, you know, you suck, you know? So I always had that in the back of my head. So that, that kind of like drove me to want to be better until one day I carved this bear that I thought was really cool. And I showed him and he just didn't say anything, but like shrugged his shoulders and then walked away. And I took that as, Hey, you know, at least he didn't hurt my feelings that time. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, we're all pretty hard on ourselves a lot of times, I think. Um so I was gonna ask you too, how do you as an artist or a business person deal with failure? Like for example, you know, as an artist you're really putting yourself out there a lot of times. And I I apply to a lot of things and really try to get myself out there and try to create opportunities. And I know I just applied to a sculpture walk and was like denied rejected <laughs> I was not chosen and you know you're kind of getting a slump then you're like oh man what did I do or what did I not do or how do you deal with stuff like that um I think that one of the ways that I deal with that honestly is by not not placing my value in um carving or my artwork you know I mean although that may be sound a little crazy because I'm like pouring my heart into it but I, I'm not, that's not really where I find, you know, my value. I don't think, think, oh, if this person buys or doesn't buy or likes this or doesn't like it, that's not a reflection on, you know, me or who I am. It's just, you know, hey, maybe they didn't have enough money for it or maybe they couldn't afford it or maybe bears and eagles just aren't their thing. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good point because I even was thinking about that. I mean, I've had several different things over the years where I've applied and been rejected or you know, had somebody not buy something with the sculpture walk thing, I was thinking, you know, sometimes they're looking for particular different types of art because they want a variety. So it could have even been something like, oh, you know, we have too many wildlife sculptures this year. So we better get rid of a couple and, and look for a different style, you know. So like you said, it's, it's probably good to step back and look at the bigger picture and try to think about it's probably not what you think. It's not as bad as you think. <laughs> you know, and uh, for, for me, I think that, uh, you know, maybe with like trying to get into certain competitions and stuff, I think that sometimes whenever you're, <clears throat> you may not get accepted into a one that you think, oh, I'm good enough for this, you know, well, it doesn't really matter, you know, we'll keep practicing and keep carving because I know that for me, when I started doing competitions, it was because I wanted to be able to carve big logs into really awesome stuff. And since I'm just, I'm not very, you know, strong or big and I don't own a skid steer, 
moving those logs that size is impossible for me ultimately just by myself. So I never really got the opportunity to carve pieces that I think are, and even to this day, I can't find a log big enough for me to carve some of my ideas in. And a lot of these guys are adding pieces in and I've tried that and I just, I really, I don't know. It, it just doesn't do it for me. I, I like to do my pieces for the most part, all one piece. And I like to do the detail with the majority of the chainsaw. And mm -hmm. uh, because of that, I just, I like to use a, a whole log whenever I start to, to finish. And it's just, um, I don't know. I guess that's just what I prefer. Yeah, I know. It is a whole different thing when you start gluing pieces on. A lot of times when I do lamination or glue stuff on, I love the end result, but the actual process of, you know, like I was at a competition in Wisconsin and I'm climbing on, you know, scaffolding and steps and trying to hold pieces and glue pieces. And a lot of times you're working by yourself and that, at least for me, that's the hardest part. <laughs> and then once I get it all glued up, then I relax a little, but I don't enjoy that process. I enjoy how it looks later, but it's not fun. <laughs> And for, I, I've tried to add in a couple times and I didn't really like how it came out. You know, for me, I was like, man, that just looks terrible. Or I always end up like cutting a screw with like a brand new chain. And it just was like, you know what? I just don't think it's worth it. I'd rather yep, just. I've uh, done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I remember this one event I was at, um, this ice carver had carved this fairy on the mushroom. I, I know that people have seen the design before. And then at the end, you know, in the auction, the guy who bought it was trying to convince people to just cut the wings off, you know, oh, there's no screws in there. There's no screws in there. And everybody knew there was like, you know, the timber locks in there and there was probably about five <laughs> of them. And finally he suckered uh -huh. some carver into using their big saw and going through it, man. And they hit every single one of them. And it was like, oh, no. I'm glad that wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how do you juggle your carving life with your family life and your other commitments? How do you find balance in life? Because I know a lot of times people that are self-employed or artists, um, it's easy to overdo one thing, right? And, and ignore the other. So how do you find balance? Um, well, I, re I remember a, a few years ago, um, I had, I was setting up in this one spot in a, a really good area and I had my whole order pad full for Christmas and it was wonderful. And, you know, I had all this money and orders that I was going to do. Well, I started in November and I'm carving this huge, thick book full of orders. And it just got to where I was like killing myself to go out and make more carvings and to, to move these huge logs and to do all this stuff. And then it got to where it's like a week before Christmas and then I'm like crawling out to my pit, like one more bear, you know I mean? It's like 300 more bucks. And it's like, I could really use that, you know, the winter's coming. And I right. just, uh, I ended up getting hurt, um, uh, pretty bad. Like my back, I ended up, uh, I don't really know what happened, but I didn't drink a lot. I didn't drink enough water. I didn't stretch enough. I was working 12 to 14 hour days, just trying to finish everything. And they're, seemed to be no end really in sight. And I uh, ended up laid up. Like I couldn't car for like three months, hardly die. And I couldn't, I could hold a chainsaw, but not really for longer than five minutes. And I had yeah. to go to, I spent all the money that I had made from that whole order pad. I rented this little apartment and I bought a really nice mattress and I paid the rent on my apartment for uh, three months in advance. 
And then I spent the rest of my money on just massage and chiropracting. And after that season, I just, I didn't really want to, uh, not work that hard again, but I was always like scared when I get that little twinge in my back there that that's going to happen again and I'm not going to be able to work. So I, I've tried to find, you know, as I get older, a, a, just a better balance, you know, by putting the most important things in my life as priority, you know, and that for me, my relationship with God and then my time with my family and then work, you know, and everything seems to work out a lot better like that. I, I heard somebody refer to it as, you know, you put the big stones in the jar first and then the sand, which is like other stuff that's going on in your life. And then the water, which is stuff that really doesn't matter. And, you know, you have to get those big things in there first because that's, that's what's most important. Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. And I, I don't chainsaw carve as much as you do, but I can relate to it with teaching. You know, a lot of times I'm so far behind on teaching that I want to work on stuff over the weekend. But then if I do it, I'm not as good of a teacher on Monday. You know, I try to, if I really need to do something, I do. But otherwise, I try to just relax and be with my family and create art on the weekend so that when I go back, I'm uh, I'm in a better place to be a teacher. If I bur- If I burn myself out, it's hard to have anything left to give to your students, you know? Yeah. And, and I agree, you know, and I have, um, and since then I really have not really lost interest in chainsaw carbon because I still really enjoy it, but it just doesn't take up so much space in my mind anymore to where, um, you know, making that as my number one. And especially after getting married and then having a baby, you realize that, you know, your time, you know, or my time, not yours has to be, <laughs> It has to be distributed, you know, more appropriately now, you know, if if I wake up in the morning and I, you know, eat breakfast or, and read the Bible and stuff and do that, then that is the most important thing. But then I, you know, my wife and daughter, they need attention too, before I can just go off to work. And, you know, whenever I was just me, I would like wake up and read and then go out and then work all day and come back in and have all this time for myself. And it was great, but it's, you know, that time for me and the family has to be kind of shared and uh, work kind of has to not really take a back burner because, you know, providing for my family is, is one of the most important aspects of my job. But I really just, mm-hmm. I just don't put so much emphasis on trying to make money anymore. And I've come to find that in, in your life, if, if you stop trying to like make money or focus on work so much, then you end up getting a lot of work and you end up making a lot of money. And it's really nice to not have to worry about it at all. Isn't that cool how you don't stress and it still happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know too, I don't know if this is with all artists, but because I tend to be introverted, I kind of recharge when I'm by myself. But sometimes when I get working on a project, I get that obsessive to the point where I don't need to stop to eat and I don't need to stop to sleep and it's two o'clock in the morning and I'm still painting and I'm just like in the zone. And sometimes I have to be like, wait, wait, my kids, my kids have been waiting to hang out with me. You know, I got to (laughs) stop, you know, and, and, and everybody has, you know, has to learn what works best for them ultimately, you know, and I, I can't imagine what it's like to have two kids or, or three kids or more, you know, and it's just, it's all that I can handle right now with uh, just having a little eight-month-old, but then now she's starting to crawl, so you can't just like, all right, here, you just sit right here and play with your little puppy piano, and then 
dad will be right back after he, you know, goes and gets a drink of water because now she's like halfway across the thing eating, you know, some tag yeah. off a piece of clothes. And you're like, no. In everything. <laughs> yep. But, you know, it, it's it's a wonderful adventure, you know, and uh, everybody everybody's going to go through those different seasons of their lives. And uh, I think that finding balance is a constant, um, you know, you constantly have to be checking yourself, I guess, and say, hey, you know, am I... Am I doing what's most important here or am I worrying about this other stuff? You know, like if I brass wire brush this piece and sand it or if I just leave it all natural and I say, you know what, it really doesn't matter, you know, because ultimately yeah. the customer is going to love it anyway. And if they don't, then eh, just carve a new one and sell that one to someone else. Right. So do you have your work in galleries or other businesses? And if you do, how do you approach them to start that relationship? Um. Well, I thought about reaching out to galleries before and uh, to other things, but for the most part, I don't. And um, I think that let's say we go and we, we make this chainsaw carving out of this specialty wood and it's really beautiful. And I spent like three days just finishing the thing after I've carved it and detailed it and whatever. Um, they don't know anything about the process. They don't know anything about the wood. So when a customer comes up and is like, hey, you know, I see that you have this piece and what kind of wood is it out of? And the people that are running the gallery or the shop or whatever look at them and they're like, um, I don't know. You know, it, it's just not really good for sales. So I just, uh, I kind of stopped wanting to, to do that, you know, unless it would be in a carver shop because of course a carver is going to know more about sure. it. But I don't have a whole lot of carving friends close by, I would say, that have galleries or shops that have a whole lot of room for my stuff on top of whatever they're doing. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't really have a problem selling stuff myself. So I think that if I make a nice piece, sometimes I like to keep it <clears throat> either for my own enjoyment or to display wherever I'm displaying my work. And um, I don't know, I feel like that it helps me make sales. But if I didn't have that piece, then someone else who maybe not doesn't know as much about it would be you know, in charge of selling it and it may not sell for a long time. And I could, I don't know, probably benefit from just keeping it with me instead. Yeah. I know right now I, I mainly do commissioned pieces and I can't hardly carve fast enough to have inventory. So I don't, I don't do a lot of putting my work in other people's galleries or businesses. But when I first started carving, um, I did try to get some of my work in other businesses that sold similar you know, types of art. And I kind of found I had no idea, you know, like how to do the business end of it, you know, like how much commission should they get and how much should I get? And, you know, do I do it on consignment or do I do it, you know, just through them and they take money off the top and, you know, stuff like that. I I haven't dealt with that a lot, but I can see what you're saying. It, it's interesting thinking about if they can't answer as many questions about the work, would it sell as well? I don't know. Well, and, and I think that um, one of the major deterrents for me from putting my uh, artwork in shops is that th most people are going to want at least 30%. And to me, that's just, it's just too much. You know, I'm not going to give somebody $30 out of every hundred bucks I make. That's just ridiculous. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you know, you tie 10% and then the, and then the IRS wants 20%. So then that's 30%. Now if somebody else wants 30%, that's 60. So I'm carving for $40, 
for every hundred dollars, which doesn't really make sense. So I would just, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I just, I just keep my inventory for the most part. And I've also tried, you know, especially since my daughter was born to move away from production carving. I mean, it's great and all I like it, but if I'm going to make pieces, I want them to be, you know, higher quality ultimately, you know, and pieces that I'm, I enjoy looking at. And I've carved, I've carved 12 pieces in a day at one time. And uh, to me, that was like a high watermark as far as production. And I just, some of them ended up not selling as fast as others because I was, I was able to put love into the ones that I did the next day where I carved eight or that I want to carve six the day after that. And I spent more time and I put more love into them than they sell faster. And then the ones that I carved really quick that I think that don't look that good kind of end up hanging around unless they're priced ridiculously cheap. So I, I try to do, you know, less work for uh, more money these days, I think, especially after getting hurt that, that one year, I just, uh, it, it's not worth carving a whole bunch of stuff that I really hate lugging around anyway. Right. And no matter, you know, you're making money either way, but I think it's more fulfilling when you said like the ones that you put more love into you, uh, even if it's subconsciously, you just feel a little bit better about what you're creating, which is going to make you in turn just feel better in general. You know, and, and it doesn't always have to be a big, beautiful masterpiece. I mean, it could be a little tiny bear that's like, you know, doing something weird or, or whatever. I did yeah. this, I did this bear. It was like a bear bust almost just from his arms below. And I made him holding this little dish where I kind of hollowed it out a little bit with a saw and I wrote keys on it. And it was just for 175 bucks, but man, it was really cute and really small. And I thought, you know, I love this piece. Well, the first weekend I brought it out, it sold right away. And and I normally have, you know, that same thing happen whenever you put pieces that you really love, those sell faster. So why not just carve, you know, everything that you love and then just, I don't know if there's other people that are a lot better at carving production than I am. And if that works out for them, then great. But for me, I'd rather just, uh, I don't know, lighten the load. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know sometimes too, you know, people have been having that conversation that I was talking with Griffin about with the CNC machine and pre pre CNC machine, I've, I've known carvers to hire other carvers to carve production stuff for them, right? Like I've known some carvers that have a gallery, but they'll hire other carvers to be like, Hey, can you crank out all these little bears and all these little fish? for me and then I'll I'll kind of finish them so it's almost like you know hiring out the CNC machine but with people (laughs) and uh, you just can't make stuff fast enough sometimes you know and I have a a younger cousin who he'll he'll sometimes try his hand at carving he really doesn't stick with it for longer than a year ever continuously but I mean if he wants to come around then I'd let him carve like the little bears eagles and owls and then I'll just carve you know what I, I don't know ultimately whatever I want I just tell him hey you yeah. carve whatever you want. I'll carve whatever I want. And then it ends up making your inventory look better. And, you know, and pe- more people want to stop and stuff. And I just, right. you know, I'm not really so worried about, you know, if he makes more money than me or if I make more money, as long as we make enough to keep living, then I think ultimately that's really the American dream. Yeah. So do you have any tips about finishing or tools that you think other carvers should know about? Um. I think that one of the things that, that one of the tools that I use that you don't see a lot of carvers using is a tool called a DA. 
and uh, it, it's a it's a type of palm sander, and it's made by Porter Cable. And you can go get one from Lowe's. Okay. They used to be like 185 bucks, but if you're if you're doing like a sanding a flat surface, and not just sanding it, but fine finishing it to where you want to go yeah. up to like 220 or more, then I would recommend carvers looking into getting one because it it finishes stuff very fast. You know, I. I'll start out with an angle grinder on a 24 grit and that takes off the chainsaw marks. And then you go to like a 40 grit on the DA and you take off all the grinder marks. And then mm -hmm. from then you can move up at whatever increments you feel comfortable with. I'll normally jump to like 80 and then, you know, 120 and then 220. And that just makes it, it just makes it for, for easier finishing stuff. And sometimes even with the DA, I've really cheated and I've just went right to the 40 grit, skip the angle grinder but that's on something that you don't need like a perfectly smooth surface. You know, I just, uh, I think that's one of the things also, um, one summer I carved with John Vincent and, uh, he was using, a this, this big giant leaf torch to burn his carvings. And I had this little tiny one that you like click and it takes you like almost as long to burn the piece as it did to carve it. And here he comes right. along with this leaf torch and he lines up all of his carvings for the whole week and just, and then goes down the other side and burns them all throw all torch. And then he started to use like the, the brass wire brush to kind of rub the, the burn in there and make like this deep Brown color and then come back over with a flap sander to make the highlights. Yeah. And I really took a liking to, um, the way that looks, I mean, you can, I mean, I know a lot of carvers use white pine, but if you use a, mm -hmm. you know, a fresh piece of white pine or, you know, a little bit aged piece, it's fine. But then you burn it really dark at the end of uh, carving it and then you rub it with a brass wire brush and then blow it all off. It has like this bronze color to it. And then you can go back over with the yeah. flap sander and, you know, create the light, you know, the way that you want it to. And uh, I guess in a way it kind of made like a vintage look to where you just like polyurethane it after that or you know whatever coating you want and it makes it i don't know to me i i just really enjoyed the way that it came out i mean some people use paints and all this stuff and and you can still do that on top of all that stuff you know paint it black after you've done all that and then paint it on top but i yeah i remember whenever i was carving for like a year i met a carver and his name was uh thor and he said to me that if you're a if you're a good carver but a terrible painter don't paint your carvings because you're going to take a carving that looks decent and you're going to make it look, you know, not so great. But if you mm -hmm. are a mediocre carver and you're an excellent painter, then I would say to paint all of your carvings because you can take a carving that, you know, is kind of, you know, mediocre, maybe some parts of it are good and you can really make it look beautiful. And I just, I've tried to stay away from paint for the most part because I am a terrible painter and, uh, I like to use mostly the chainsaw to do my details. So I just, uh, I realized that, you know, Hey, painting really isn't for me, but I have dry brushed on occasion and, uh, I got to where I was decent at it, but I haven't done it for years because I had this giant bin of paints in the bed of my truck one time get spilled over after a carving came unstrapped and fell into it and paint mm -hmm. got everywhere. And that kind of just left a bitter taste in my mouth as far as painting. Yeah. yeah. No, and I know what you're talking about with that, the big torch. I actually got one from, I think from Harbor Freight after I saw it years ago, but it, it's incredible how fast it is. Um, and I actually a couple times went to a competition where we couldn't fit everything in the truck 
And that was one of the things one time that got left out. And I was just praying that somebody had one I could borrow. Oh man, I tell you. Said, Otherwise it's ours. And when I first started out, I even had like the propane torch with the separate igniter mm. where I'm trying to like create spark. And that, that thing just kept going out and going out. And then I finally at least got map gas, you know, that had the igniter on it. Cause map gas works way better than propane. But yeah, the, the weed burner or whatever they call it, the big one is pretty incredible with that wire brush. You know, and I agree. And there's, there's carvers I've seen who use the acetylene torches and uh, I probably am going to try to do something like that here in the next little while. I just, I was always scared of the idea of having like an oxygen tank and, you know, fire and gas and everything everywhere. I just, Uh uh, last thing I wanted was like an explosion. Let's say I didn't strap it down properly or a carving falls into it. And next thing you know, your trailer blows up when you're driving down the road. Yeah. So Yeah, it does sound intimidating. I know though, they, with the acetylene torches, I've seen carvers do such an incredible job of like detail burning, right? Like they can get very prescriptive with exactly where they burn and just burning certain parts and they can create incredible shadow, you know, like um, in certain spots and not the whole carving. Oh yeah, most definitely. And uh, one of the, one of the recent carvers I've seen uh, use it is uh, Alonzo Montoya. He uh, used it at the show and it's almost like it created the uh, look of burning it dark with a propane and then brass wire brushing it. It's almost like it, it jumps straight to that phase with the acetylene. Sure. So I, that may, may need to be something that I look into. Yeah. So um, what tips do you have about, like if carvers do stump jobs for just tips about stump jobs in general and or like what about setting up scaffolding and stuff for stump jobs because you're typically in weird terrain or in somebody's flower bed or on the side of a hill or, you know, whatever. I think that one of the most important things um, for me is always to be able to build a 360 degree walk board to where you can like move it up in stages. And um, I, I've seen people carve from a ladder before and stuff, and it'll take them like, a, I don't know, you know, a month would be an exaggeration, but it just takes forever because once you make this cut, then you have to climb back down the ladder and move it, you know, eight inches to the right and then finish making that cut or whatever. And it's just, it's mm-hmm. ridiculous. And for the most part, um, uh, where I live, people's trees aren't going to be much over three foot diameter or between two and three foot. And you can set uh, scaffolding up on either side of the tree. You know, normally it'll be like about two sets on each side. And then you can uh, build the walk boards across from each other and then set, set the other ones so they hang on those and just move up, you know, two foot at a time or three foot at a time or whatever you need. I Well, actually, I move down rather because I normally start from the top. But, you know, mm-hmm. once you get above two sets of scaffolding, You know, I would most definitely recommend trying to build the most complete, uh, I guess, 360 degree platform you can. You can't always do that. And some people want to use a lift, but a lift is difficult also, like a bucket or whatever, where you sit in it. You want to carve from one side and then you have to stop making the cut, you know, lock the chain break and then move the lift to the other side as well. So I just think that, you know, if you can maybe get a helper to help you set up scaffolding, that really it makes your life a lot easier. I recently did this job that was 20 foot tall and the tree was this weird Y shape and I couldn't build my 360 degree walk board. And I quoted the guy for, Hey, it's going to take this long. 
Well, it ended up taking me twice as long because I couldn't walk around the middle part of the tree because I didn't have a long enough board. And uh, I, I'm not going to go use like a 2x12 or a 2x10 because I've heard of carvers falling through them and falling off of them. And sure. uh, it's just, it's not worth your life to go, you know, work in someone's yard for whatever and be risking pretty much your whole career. You know, if I fall off of that, I don't have a an insurance plan that's going to cover me to where my wife and daughter can still eat or whatever. So I want to, I want to make sure to be as safe as possible. And it's also uh, very important to use the leveling jacks and everything and make sure everything's good and level before you start so that you're not on like a rickety dangerous thing. And also uh, even at times, once I get above the third set, sometimes I ratchet strap the scaffolding to the tree in a certain way to where you can't even hardly shake it. And that makes you feel a lot safer when you're up there too. Sure. That kind of makes sense. Cause I used to do construction with my dad and we would, um, you know, we would screw eye hooks right into the side of the house and, and wire to the house. So it's kind of like that when you're just strapping to the tree, you know, well, most definitely, you know, and when we're moving those big pieces off of some trees, the last thing you want to do is have it smash into your scaffolding. And then the next thing you know, <clears throat> the whole thing's coming, tumbling down and you with a chainsaw in your hands along with it, you know, nobody wants to deal with that. Oh yeah. I know the first, my first stump job ever, I was pretty naive. And I mean, I, I had a contract signed and everything. So, I mean, business wise, we had it all figured out, but I got there and they had left it four feet taller than they were supposed to. And I didn't have enough scaffolding and I had traveled to get there. And I'm like, I was totally by myself. And I'm like, man, am I going to go home, you know, or what am I? So I, I cut a big piece off the top. And I was totally scared. I'm like, how am I going to drop this? You know, and I took like one of the braces off to try to make a spot to drop it. And I thought I had it all figured out and I dropped it on a brace. Mm -hmm. And it was, I had borrowed my dad's scaffolding, so I had to buy him a new brace. It was, (laughs) it was not good, Well, but I didn't tip over. So one time I was cutting a big soaring eagle and I cut this piece off of the eagle from like the top left of the log to towards the bottom right of the log to kind of get that. And when it came off of the the piece, it fell into the scaffolding. And I that's I guess sometimes you have to learn the hard way. And I would really recommend to people to just, you know, be as safe as you can. Don't take those huge chunks that weigh four hundred pounds and drop them anywhere. You know, try to pe- right. try to piece it up in little sections to where you can at least lift and kind of throw a certain way to where it's not hitting your scaffolding. Cause if it falls into you know, the piece that you're standing on, that could really, could really mess you up. And also, uh, yeah, the two by the two by tens or two by 12. Some people say to use those, but I, I've been on a job to where I was on a two by 10 and, you know, you're making a cut and you're not really paying attention. You go to step and I literally almost fell backwards off of this thing. And, you know, whenever you're holding like right. a, a 460 or a 660 or whatever, 70 CC or above saw that you use, the last thing you want to do is fall backwards with that saw ripping in your hand. Right. Definitely. I know one, I've been really lucky a few times on, on sites. I have Eric, my husband with me. So, and like you said, setting up scaffolding with two people is so nice. I mean, it just makes, it makes the whole job go easier, but I got to borrow scaffolding from a construction company for a job that I did. So we didn't have to bring a trailer and they had the leveling legs and they had the really nice, 
you know, like aluminum hook on planks and lots of them. And I was just on this huge platform. I mean, it was big enough. You could almost dance up there. I wouldn't recommend it, but huge platform, leveling legs, like all, all the right stuff. And after that, I'm like, I think I need to go buy some new parts for my scaffolding because the job just went so much better oh, yeah. with theirs. Well, you know, and you feel a lot safer. And another, another thing that I like to do, especially on those big tree jobs is, uh, I build the scaffolding up, you know, one more tier than I actually need it. So I'm never standing on like the top of a scaffolding with just a walk board and nothing to grab onto. If you go to fall, I like to build mm-hmm. it up <clears throat> just one more on top. And then you can put one of those aluminum walk boards or the wooden ones uh, that, that hook into the scaffolding and you kind of like tilt this little lever on the bottom and it locks the board in and you can use it as mm-hmm. like a bench and bring your gas and oil and your saws up there and set it on there with like your air compressor and build like a two platform thing that you would stand on. And then one of those platforms to kind of have like the bench area in the back. And it, it makes you be able to work faster. It makes it to where you feel safer. You don't have to climb up and down all the time, you know, to every time you get a gas Mm -hmm. and oil, because, you know, uh, on this last job, I had to build it four tiers high. And when you have to come down off of four tiers and it's not, built in a 360 degree walk board and you got to, you feel like that you're risking your life every time you got to go get a tool. Uh, you, you just, right. you just don't want to do it. And it really slows you down and it, it takes away your peace of mind. to where you can't really focus on, you know, the art that you're making. You're more worried about dying. Right. Yeah. That's not good. <laughs> so is there anything else that we didn't talk about or didn't get to that you want to share with other carvers? Yeah, I have a I have a couple things, you know, it's it's not not too much. It's not too complicated, but um lift properly. I know a lot of people, you know, might pick up a carving that maybe a 3 or a 4 foot bear and they might be a big strong guy and not really think much about it, but I mean even carvers as strong as Jeff Postma end up hurting their back from lifting stuff wrong and I would uh I would recommend, you know, maybe one of those little motorcycle stands. Or uh, they have these little uh, tables that you can like step on and it, and it lifts up. Uh, Brandon Adams told me about those. And uh, mm-hmm. also don't like bend over at your waist to where you're like your legs are straight, but you're like bending over to where your back's parallel to the ground. I'd try, mm-hmm. to, try to stay away from doing that. You know, if you got to bend over, try to like, you know, bend down a little bit, either that or try to get the carving up to where you are. And also uh, stretch and drink water. You know, um, that's one of the things I had to go to like a, a sports medicine doctor. I had to go to him and he, he had to put me through like this little, not like a training regiment, but yeah, something like that to where I had to work out other muscles and I had to stretch and, you know, you'd go there for an hour and then he would like stretch you for like 30 minutes before you even did any kind of workouts. And it's like, wow, you know, I, you really don't think about it, but if you're chainsaw carving right. on a regular basis, then you are an extreme athlete and um, uh-huh. holding a 20 pound object in your hand or sometimes more, it um, it can really take its toll on your body and you don't really realize it until, you know, it's a little bit too late. So definitely stretch and uh, drink, you know, I would say at least a gallon of water. They say that you're supposed to drink a gallon of water a day, like if you're not doing anything physically strenuous that day. So, I mean, I try to drink like... Yeah, and if you're carving and sweating, you need more. Yeah, yeah most definitely. And also, if you're doing the those show, like if you're going to go anywhere to like a show where you set up your tent and you want to set up some kind of netting, 
I don't know if you guys have a tractor supply up where you live, but um, down here where we are, there's a tractor supply. And right now they're selling this deer net and the holes in it are like one inch by one inch. And it's like a thicker plastic. It's not like the, mm-hmm. you see some people use like the bird netting from Home Depot. And honestly, if a, if a chunk goes to go through that, it's going to go, it's going to break that little plastic stuff. And it's not going to really, I know some carvers are violent or violent show carvers. I'm kind of one of those a little bit. And uh, a, a piece will go right through that little weak netting. So you want to kind of get the the more sturdy stuff and really, you know, I, I think it's like 50 bucks for a hundred foot of it and it'll last you all season. Right. Yeah. I think we can get, I can get deer netting at like L&M Fleet or Fleet Farm, um, maybe even Menards up here. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's just a lot safer for people who are watching by and also like watch, watch carving underneath a, a tent. You know, you might want to take your tent and like lift it up a little bit because those carbon monoxide fumes can really get to you and you don't really realize it. But, you know, if you start to get sick or get a headache, you know, that's you, you need to take a break and go ahead and cut like a one foot little little stump to put your tent up on and then you can like timber lock the tent into the stump and that also helps hold it down you know but yeah i've actually been in competition tents that are too low Mm. with you know 10 to 15 carvers under a big tent and with not a lot of air and felt kind of sick or like eyes really watering from all the fumes and um Lately, most of the competitions that I'm in have big fans, you know, big industrial fans running. So I actually, I didn't get a huge one, but I bought an industrial fan to run under my tent. Yeah, and that. So if I have electricity, I run that. Yeah, that is a great idea. You know, you have to stay to where you have good ventilation. You know, uh, the fumes from carving are no joke and it can make you make you sick in a hurry, you know, and really take from whatever you are planning to do that day can really just ruin your plans. Yeah. Oh, and then to the lifting thing. Um, I'm not sure how far it's buried, but Abby Peterson posted something about, you know, like how to screw a two by four into a log and kind of like roll lift it and it doesn't take much of your body or your back. Um, I can't remember where he posted it, but I reposted it to the Women Chainsaw Carvers page because I know I have a hard time lifting logs, but that was a really cool thing. Maybe I'll repost it so people can see it again. Hey, I look forward to seeing that one. I, I know that there's a lot of carvers that build all these kind of contraptions. And one thing I that's helped me is like a little uh, a cant hook where you can just stick oh, it yeah. in the log and roll it over. It gives you that extra little bit of leverage. You know, a lot of these young guys yeah. that are carving don't really think about it. And I started when I was 19 and I would like, whenever I would get to the part of my bear where I would fur it, I would like throw it on the ground and just roll it around and stand with my back, you know, and just bend over. Bent over. And it, yeah. That, you know, I wish I could go back and undo that now, but you, you know, you can't. So I hope that I can pass on that knowledge that you don't, you don't want to feel like that you're 50 years old when you're 25. Right. Yeah. Well, cool. Good, good tips to stay healthy so you can carve for a long time. Um, yeah, and I, I really don't have any other tips or tricks, really. I mean, if you, you guys want to come by someday, and maybe we can carve together, and I'll show you some tips or tricks with a saw. But other than that, uh, I don't really have anything that I could tell you over the over the internet, where you could be like, "Oh yeah, what a great idea." Yeah. With no video, no images. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, this is all good. It's been really good talking with you, Chris. Hey, you too, Molly. Thanks for listening to the Chainsaw Carving Podcast today. I originally started this podcast because in the winter here in Minnesota, I really enjoyed listening to 
the workshops that Ridgeway put out on YouTube. Uh, I really like having a source of information that I can listen to to feel connected to other carvers. So I hope that carvers that are isolated or carvers that kind of have some downtime in the winter, that this can help keep you connected to the chainsaw carving world and maybe help re-inspire you if you're kind of in a slump. Be sure to go and check out our other episodes. Um, You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, through Podbean, I think pretty much anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Please leave us a rating, uh, share it, like it, send it to a friend. If you guys have any topics that you'd like to hear covered or any certain carvers that you'd like to hear from, you can email me at wistywoodworks at gmail.com.